When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to the payday edition of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York and on the show this week, payday loans. When do they become usurious? That's one of my favorite words. We'll also talk about BuzzFeed's new $850 million valuation and also in the world of big numbers, the super high salaries of data scientists. We might have some big numbers in the numbers round, but I am not going to tease them right now. We're losing that bit of the show this week. Instead, I'm going to move swiftly on to introducing our regular guests. We have Kathy O'Neill, head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Felix. And Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Wiseman. Hello, Felix. Hello. Very first, before we do anything else, I think I need to have a corrections column. We will move on to the mailbag in a minute. Oh, no. But what did I say? I, I, it was me. Oh, thank It God. was me. I made a mistake yesterday, last week when Kathy's talked about a stick and said that a stick was a million dollars. I said, yes, and then in foreign exchange, a yard is a million dollars. Of course, that was a brain fart. In foreign exchange, a yard is a billion dollars. I was oh. only out by <laughs> three orders of magnitude. There are very many people getting bonuses of that. Not very many billion-dollar bonuses, but there are billion-dollar FX trades not only every day, but hundreds of times a day. The foreign exchange market, in terms of volume, is by far the highest volume market in the world. And I'm always kind of astonished at how little attention is paid to it, given the absolutely enormous sizes of the flows involved. Anyway, I have we, a story about that. Oh, go Can on. Yes, come on. Give us a, give <laughs> us love, a little we love story. Well, okay, time, as a quant at DE Shaw, I was actually in charge of like rolling over the um, FX trades in yen on like a Christmas Eve. It was like one of those weird nights. When, Is that like, the like journalism equivalent of like having to do <laughs> night cops on Christmas or something? Something like, like that. It was, maybe it was New Year's. <laughs> I don't know. Some people, some traders who usually did it were like away because of Christmas, but then the, you know, it, it was just crazy and I almost didn't do it. <laughs> and we were like, oh my God, somehow my friend Slava like, ca- caught it in time. I was like, did you do those? And I was like, no, I didn't do those. And we did them just in time. But if I hadn't done it, it would have been like, you know, 4 billion yen hand delivered in Tokyo the next day. <laughs> I was like, holy crap. <laughs> that was bad. Be, be, beware, beware cash settled FX futures, because if you forget about them, you have to settle in cash. Um, Jordan. Yes. If you enter into a contract with some random Nomura bank or something, you're, you're dealing with billions and billions of yen. But if you in, enter into a contract, this is my dangerous segue. Into dangerous. Pay, I felt payday, it coming. Payday, payday loans. If you enter into a contract to just pay 100 bucks out of your paycheck in a week, this is not 
international capital markets, efficient movement of capital to where it is most effective. It is usury. Yes. So this week, um, New York brought an indictment against a pay- online payday loan operation out of Tennessee, Chattanooga, I believe, Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, that was violating New York state usury laws. Um, there, in past years, there's been a wave of states that tried to ban payday lenders. And that was, generally speaking, pretty easy when you were talking about shops on the corner that were charging, you know, interest rates of upwards when you multiplied over a year, about 600 uh, percent. Uh, all you had to do is do like what New York does and cap interest rates at, say, 25 percent, and they couldn't operate anymore. That's become a lot more complicated now that you have people doing it online and offering, you know, deals from websites where people in New York can go and get their cash and do the transfer through a bank. This Operation Tennessee used a whole bunch of companies to kind of hide their location, their operations. They were incorporated in the West Indies, amongst other places. Eventually, prosecutors uh, or investigators sorted all of that out, and they've brought an indictment. What I think is um, always always troubles me about these cases is that, and here's the telling details, that New York was, they knew that New York was a dangerous place to do business. They were very aware of that, uh, these operators, or from the reports at least. But the evidence suggests they didn't want to abandon New York as a market because it was their third most profitable. There was a huge demand. And that's always the sticking point with payday loans is that on the one hand, these really do land people in bad situations where they're taking out debts. They end up having – they can't repay at the interest. They end up having to roll them over continuously and they get trapped in a debt cycle. On the other hand, there's not necessarily a better option for these low-income people who don't necessarily have access to normal financial products or they're essentially unbanked to get the credit they need on short terms. And it's just always – and so they turn to these products because they are what's available. And that's why even when they try to ban them, it's very hard to keep people from trying to go online and get them. Um, And I don't know what you do about this situation. I don't know – I mean it's – uh, Kathy's uh, Kathy, Kathy, Kathy and I have ideas. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, maybe, maybe. I have ideas too, but they don't seem to have. Anyway, I'd like to hear it, your guys. Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of things to say, and you yeah. know, for for example, um, as Matt Levine said over at Bloomberg, you know, the bank the bank um, versions of these um, overdraft fees, which are not exactly the same thing, but they they have the same kind of uh, it's basically effect. a loan. Yeah. You know, if you don't have the money, you can it's sort a of very, overdraft. It's a very short term loan. If you want a very short term loan from a bank, the way you normally do that in reality is by going overdrawn. And that can be even more expensive than the payday loan. Exactly. Right. It can be. So that's one thing to say. Another thing to say is, you know, the defense that the payday loan industry uses is like, oh, well, it's it's high percentage APR over the, over the whole year, but these are short term loans. So that you shouldn't really think of them as year um, annual percentage rates. But the truth is it often gets rolled over and becomes much more like an annual rate than a short-term loan. And it traps people. I mean, that's the bottom. It traps people. So going to the trap, it's very – it is is an apparent conundrum. You're like, what can we do? These people sometimes really need the money, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I learned a lot by talking to someone from France where they have really strong usury laws. Now, obviously, businesses hate that. But – Lenders, you mean? um, you know, people who want a business loans too, like junk bonds. So bor- borrowers. Yeah, borrowers. Um, but I, I, it, but what it made me do is it made me separate two different kinds of borrowing that I think we often forget to separate. One is like investment. Yeah. I'm actually needing this money to make this investment in my business, or and I really think I can do it and give me this money. I'm willing to pay good interest rates for it versus basic needs. Right. Make so like which is, which is also known as consumption smoothing. Yeah. What I, is? 
but like it, 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 it's the two main kinds of loans uh, is is investment versus consumption smoothing. On the one hand, on, on the one hand, I'm investing money in something with the idea that it's going to make more money in the future. Right. And with the other one, it's there's something which I'll be able to afford to buy in a week, but I want it now. So I move that forwards by borrowing the money and spending the money. And now. for someone who's taking a payday loan, oftentimes that's not something. It's not consumption in a way we, we usually think it's like an electric bill or a phone bill or Or rent. getting your car fixed so you can yeah, get to work so exactly. you won't lose your job and then lose your apartment. Just I mean, to there's, be clear. Yeah. All I'm saying is that, you know, you so th- there's this like, oh, we don't want to cut off usury at 25% because people really sometimes need that money. But in France, they're like, we can cut people off at 25% because guess what? Their basic needs are met. The other thing is that there are an increasing number of payday loan alternatives um, especially from credit unions, and so, we'll come we'll come to that later. Um, but the credit unions, credit unions in general, especially ones targeted at lower income populations, like the one I used to be on the board of in the Lower East Side of New York, have um, a number of financial products which basically act like payday loans, but also come with financial counseling, and they'll give you money against your next paycheck, but also make sure that they don't just keep on getting rolled over and they will do so at very reasonable interest rates. The problem is that these things are not convenient. The payday loans are either just to click away on the internet or you get them from little storefront stores which are open 24 hours a day and late at night when you're not at work. You know, If you need to walk into a credit union branch during normal banking hours, that's a loan makes it very difficult to get the loan. And I just also want to add that like this woman, Lisa Servon, has done the studies. She she actually worked in payday lending <clears throat> and check cashing places. And she has she makes the argument that these are better better businesses for people who need the money. That they actually because their fees are up front and you don't get this crazy overdraft situation and they actually that certain populations actually um, prefer this for those convenience reasons and for the actual fees. Compared to a, a regular bank account. Re- yes. So uh, what you brought up about credit unions is, is interesting to me because, I mean, I I wrote an article about this for the, some years ago for the Washington Post where I was kind of looking at what was happening in Washington uh, where credit unions, they, they had recently banned uh, payday lenders um, and they were trying... credit unions had banned payday lenders? No, 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 no. Washington, D.C. had recently... Okay. Co- yeah, the credit unions had come in with bats <laughs> and just gone... <laughs> no, Those credit unions. Yeah, they're famously... Yeah, uh, surprisingly um, mob-like. No. Um, so, the Washington, D.C. had banned uh, payday lenders and they were trying to work with the credit unions to provide an alternative. And, you know... One thing was the convenience aspect, which I, I kind of want to echo it because it sounds like a small issue. To, I think you're typical. It's like, oh, it's not convenient. But to the poor, to the unbanked popul- to unbanked populations, to people who are working crazy part-time schedules, whatnot, um, having flexibility on that front is so, so important because they just sometimes cannot get to a bank. It is so difficult. They only have so many things they can do in their day. Second of all, um, scaling these was really difficult, uh, especially compared to payday loans where it's sort of come in, come out with the credit union just so much more of an investment in the client and kind of building a relationship over time that getting to the same kind of size of population, I don't know, maybe people have figured out since how to do this, but actually bringing those kinds of products to um, the masses just was a was a puzzle that hadn't, or how to do that was a puzzle they hadn't, they hadn't figured out. The, the other thing is that all the evidence shows that when people take out payday loans, they are not price sensitive in the sense of... I will take out a payday loan if I need to pay back 
$10 over what I borrow, but I won't if I need to pay back $25. That's, that's really not how it works. The massive success in England of this company called Wonga, which basically does payday loans at astronomical interest rates, goes to prove that what matters is, is convenience overall, you know, a, a much more than anything else. And that also that these products are sold more than they are bought. That I mean, for, this is one thing which we haven't really touched on yet, is that, yes, there's demand for these products. But the fact is that if that, that a lot of these things are just advertised in certain ways and sold in certain ways. And if you ban the advertising and the selling, um, people are not going to seek them out and they're going to find alternatives. Um, and I agree with you both that there is a certain amount of demand which you know we should try and deal intelligently with rather than just coming in and saying we must outlaw all of this. But on the other hand, I would say that there are good and – well, there are bad and much worse actors in the payday loan industry. It's very rare to find, mm -hmm. you know, white hat payday lenders. They tend <laughs> to be pretty skeevy yeah. as a general rule. And the, some of the bad ones are really, really bad. So it's – you know, if you – if even if you do think that they're providing an important service – that doesn't make them good people. Oh, yeah, I just I, want yeah, to throw yeah. in also that, I mean, we can talk all we want about how this should be regulated, but at the end of the day, it's it's an effect. The cause is that people are broke. Yes. And, you know, if we want to deal with um, them being even more broke um, because of these usurious services, that's one thing. But, like, let's face it, it's because they're broke that they're using this in the first place. But, yeah, I, I think you, you, do, you do bring a really good point about just the advertising rules. I mean, you're treating – this is – as close to a cigarette, essentially, as financial products get um, in terms of who it's marketed to and, you know, vulnerable populations who uh, are probably not doing themselves any favor. So, you know, it's – I feel like some similarly stringent advertising rules are not necessarily the worst ideas. I would love to, by the way, interview the person who was in charge of online advertising and figure out exactly how they found these populations through Google ads or Facebook yeah, or however Yeah, that's actually – that would be fascinating. Talk about the – Fascinating. All the dangers you always bring up with big data. Mm -hmm. Actually, that is – This is this, the, this the thing. Like I care about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we're coming back to big data. But before we come back to big data, we are going to talk about BuzzFeed. I, um, and Kathy and, uh, Kathy and I both know quite a lot about BuzzFeed for various reasons. I know, I know. a little bit. <laughs> come on in. <laughs> Kathy, Kathy um, used to work with or still does work with the co-founder. John Johnson, yeah. John, John mm -hmm. Johnson. Um, I... Um, have spent a lot of time. If you if you go on the internet, um, you will find a twenty five thousand word Q and A I did with Jonah Peretti, the other co founder of BuzzFeed. So um, so in any case, BuzzFeed is a big and very interesting company. It is growing very fast, and this week it announced that it had raised fifty million dollars from Andreessen Horowitz. Um, that Andreessen Horowitz partner Chris Dixon is joining the board, and that this was done. We are told at the valuation circa $850 million. Jordan, what do you make of this? My feeling on BuzzFeed is that if you think it is possible to make money in the future off of a ad-supported model of any kind, um, BuzzFeed is the company you want to invest in. And 
you know, and, and you see, I, I'm completely disagreeing well, with you right there. Okay, well, so I don't think, no, I don't think, so, but you know, you can have a, there, there's sort of an ongoing argument. You know, what is BuzzFeed? Is it fish? Is it foul? Is it a media company? Is it an advertising agency? Is it you know? Is it uh, one agency guy? You know, put it to me a term I like, which is it's a. Um, uh, it's a turnkey media platform. Essentially, it's you know you basically go and you get everything. You get someone who's going to make your advertising for you, and they're going to you know they have the readers and the product and whatnot and the platform to launch it. Uh, but you know the, the the reality about what BuzzFeed does that is so con- or but what BuzzFeed does to make its money is it, it does custom native advertising, and I, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard this phrase at some point or another. But it's essentially you make advertising that looks a lot like content or is essentially content with an ad, with a kind of disclaimer somewhere on there that's for a company. Uh, so you make a listicle about Pepsi or whatnot, you know, the, the eight crazy things you can do on your, you know, you know, extreme sports trip while drinking a Pepsi or a Mountain Dew, whatever. Um, and then like you have a, you know, a disclaimer at the top says, you know, sponsored content and people are expected to read it like they would any other article on BuzzFeed, um, hopefully. And the, the reality is almost every media organization right now is doing something like this. But some of them are kind of bashful about it. Some of them try to kind of, you know, make it a little bit more boring. So people, it's almost like tricking the advertiser into paying for it. Some of them try to kind of really, really segment it off from the other stuff and make it extremely clear. BuzzFeed is not bashful about it. They are are all about kind of making similarly entertaining uh, content for their advertisers. And so they've gotten really good at it. Um, they give advertisers what they've, uh, you know, one guy said to me, essentially, they give advertisers what we were hoping Condé Nast would one day give us. And so if you're going to bet that this model will work, I think but this kind of having a creative, a, a, some, a kind of a hybrid creative agency and a, a uh, journalism platform molded together, BuzzFeed's the company you go for. So, I, you know, the articles I read about this, this investment basically were just kind of disgusted or shocked by the fact that BuzzFeed is worth so much more than the Washington Post because they have a confused definition of value in, in newspapers, in, in, in media. And my feeling is that you can kind of just understand this if you separate out the concept of value as in terms of like content value. Like, is this a well-researched, you know, journalistic endeavor versus the value for advertisers? And and as such, it you know BuzzFeed is value for advertisers. I'm not saying there's no journalistic content there, but you know it's mostly an advertising uh, platform. And then the question is, are they making the right bet on advertising? And I think Felix, you have something to say about that. Well, yes, I think I think I think you're absolutely right that if you know the comparing the valuation of BuzzFeed to the valuation of the Washington Post or the New York Times or any other newspaper. Is you're absolutely right. You're, you're, what you're doing is you're comparing like value as in I get lots of value out of reading this to value as in this is a company which throws off massive dividends because it's really profitable. And there's no particular reason why those two meanings of the word should be consonant and should be you know correlated with each other. Um, I think that BuzzFeed is a fascinating uh, media company mainly because. Well, as Jordan said, Jordan's absolutely right that virtually everyone online, virtually all journalistic media outlets online do have sort of dipped their toes into this native advertising world. With very, very few of them, is it a significant part of their total revenues um, 
let alone a majority. In BuzzFeed, it's 100%. BuzzFeed yeah. has zero banner ads. BuzzFeed has – you can't buy an ad on, you know, against a story on BuzzFeed. So it's a 100% pure play of, say, of going along to advertisers and saying, we can deliver the audience you want in the way that they want to read things, in the way that's going to entertain them, in the way they're going to share them. We're going to be able to help you get in front of them. And you will pay us just about any amount of money to do that because no one else has proved that they can do it. So in that world, you know, and it, it's, it seems, honestly, it seems cheap to me because um, the, the comparison I, I made this week is not a great one, but there was this company called Buddy Media, and Buddy Media, basically what it did was it made Facebook pages for brands. It was not amazingly sophisticated, and it got bought for 700 and some million dollars by Salesforce in 2012. What BuzzFeed does is way more sophisticated than that, way more valuable than that. Um, it doesn't quite have the same margins because it's more of a service and less software as a service, but now we're getting into distinctions which are not that important. I just think you have, at heart, something which brands really want. And what's more, I think that those of us in the journalism world can be very happy about that because they're using those revenues to pay for genuinely good journalism. And can I also just start with the snarky comments now? (laughs) (laughs) Which is that, you know, there's different kinds of clickbait, and the clickbait that's on BuzzFeed just makes me happier than the clickbait that doesn't tell you, like, you will be amazed when you see this video, you know. Like, it tells you up front what what it's going to... Like, I I looked on it this morning, 30 photos that will make you say, ah... Like, yeah. Okay, no. I only click on that if, if I want to say ah oh, thirty so, times. Actually, there's a distinction. I, I think that's about. There's, there, there, yeah, they're right. There are like different varietals of clickbait, and BuzzFeed's is incredibly honest. There's, yeah. no, there's no what you see in that headline really is what you get. And there's no, there's no curiosity gap stuff. You know, like yeah. you, where you need to click the headline to find out what the answer is. Yeah. There's no which I think makes people angry. And, yeah, and there's no disappointment sort of stuff where they overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah, I, I think that there is something very refreshing about what BuzzFeed does. And I mean, I, everyone on the Internet hustles for page use to some degree or another. BuzzFeed has found a way to do it while also while being incredibly honest when they're hustling and also producing some very, very good journalism. That's it. I do think this question of what is BuzzFeed is only going to get more interesting over time it is already somewhat fraught. It's going to get more interesting over time. The other big story involving them this week was the revelation that they have been deleted something around 4,000 old posts from the site, which is something that no journalism outlet would ever dream of doing, essentially. Um, but Jonah Pretty did uh, gave an interview with uh, Slate's own Will Ramis, where he explained that these were posts from when BuzzFeed considered, from before they really had a full news operation going. And when well, BuzzFeed, any, yeah. Yeah, any kind of, and when they considered themselves a pure tech company that was experimenting with t- different kinds of content and figuring out, um, you know, what exactly it wanted to be, and it didn't really have set standards in place. And so these were old posts that they figured didn't meet the bar that they, they now set for themselves. The thing is, they've also run into more recent plagiarism issues. They had to fire an editor because of that. And there is always this line of when, when are they an entertainer? When are they a journalism outlet? How do you kind of mold those two together? And I think that story about the deleting just is sort of one very 
interesting chapter in that ongoing kind of struggle that they're, they're going to face. And I don't necessarily think it's a, a bad thing that they're struggling with it. I, I, I think it's just a reality that we're all going to have to accept that there's this ambiguity in what BuzzFeed does, has been and will continue to be to some degree. Well, it's, it's a perfect segue, really, because you talked about it at, as a tech company, BuzzFeed did experiments. And we've been hearing lots of experiments from the likes of Facebook and OkCupid. Those are being um, run and designed by data scientists, which, according to, I think, the Wall Street Journal, um, is the hot new job. But by the way, I, I thought that was true four years ago. That's when I, <laughs> that's when, or at least three years ago is when I, I switched my uh, I'm imagining, title. imagining, like, a scene from The Graduate where he's just like... Correlations <laughs> instead of like instead totally. of plastics, it's just yeah. like correlations. Kathy, Kathy, how long? How long have you been a data scientist? Um, since January, since I left finance, which was like January 2011. So as soon as I got my bonus in twenty eleven, and then you were like, I, I get my bonus, and now what's the hot job? I'm going to become <laughs> yeah, a data scientist. yeah, exactly. Actually, wait, I'm going to in, I'm going to read a little letter here because we love our letters. Um, Daniel Choi wrote a letter to us saying. That he's um, he's a ph what's he called what he calls a STEM PhD science technology engineering and math he says that the cheerleading about STEM while not my primary motivation was a big factor into my decision to pursue a doctorate however the reality on the ground is starker and then he talks about vanishing academic appointments the erosion of R and D in private industry. Even the once super stable government research position, p- positions are shrinking. Um, and he says that as a result, quote, like any other sane person, I'll be turning towards the management consulting world, world once he gets his doctorate. So, you. Ooh. So, but, but, <laughs> so Daniel, our, our, our word for you, our advice for you is don't become a management consultant. Become a data scientist because that, that is where the demand is. Well, so I actually have, I have a question about this. Who, uh, I, I spent a lot of time tracking kind of the career prospects of STEM grads because of this whole debate over is there a shortage of scientific and math talent in the United States and whatnot. And you hear I've been hearing it for years. And, and my sense is, no, there isn't. There are there are problems in this market. Who is actually qualified to become a data scientist? Is there a specific kind of math genius you need to have to, uh, it's ta- like that that your typical chemist or physicist might not have? Who Who does this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, I actually wrote a book called Doing Data Science, both basically to answer this question. I, basically, it was like, hey, all these math nerds and some physics nerds and computer science nerds and, you know, sometimes chemistry, biochemistry, they're asking me, how do I become a data scientist? And I was like, well, you have to learn a little of this, you have to learn a little of this, and you have to learn some statistics and some linear algebra and some machine learning. Heck, I just write a book, you know. Um, and it wasn't really all my book. It was basically um, basically descriptions of other people's lectures um, it, about their their jobs, what they do when they're data scientists. So, um, and, you know, it's 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 the answer is... But to your question, though, you don't have to read this book. This is the the book if you want to actually become a data scientist and you have a PhD in one of these fields. The answer is, yeah, they yeah. If you have a STEM PhD, you can become a data scientist. You have to know some things. Um, it will really help if you've um, if you've been programming. It will really help if you um, already know some machine learning. I mean, but all this stuff basically, one of these PhDs teaches you how to think, teaches you how to learn. 
um, abstractly. So on the technical side of things, yes, you will become a data scientist pretty quickly. You will be hired pretty quickly. And the article mentioned that you get 500, like 100 emails a, a week on LinkedIn if you have a, a data scientist profile. That's not quite true, but I do get quite a few a week because I'm a data scientist. And also, I, also the article said starting salaries at $200,000. That's not true. Um, I do think you can make good money, though. Um, so, what is a more like what is a more typical salary range that these people are making? Like a hundred twenty. That's that's good. Um, it's good. I mean, compared <laughs> to uh, compared to the dwindling supply of jobs in academia, where you might have to move to Kansas, yes, like to, to, to get like some crappy associate professorship which pays 50 grand or something. Yeah, exactly. And may or may not be permanent. Exactly. And you'll be funding through grants. And then, and then your significant other will be like, Kansas? Really? <laughs> um, so I, I do want to say, though, that what we've been seeing lately fascinates me with, a, with the Facebook experiment and the OKCupid experiment. What you're seeing is that you have these people that are highly developed in sort of a scientific mindset and rigorous mathematical mindset that haven't really thought about how it affects other people and how their jobs actually affect other people very much at all. So basically, if you bring a scientist into your company with tons and tons of users, chances are they're going to want to play around with those users and experiment. That's They've done experiments that's, I mean, life. that's what they think the fun is. Yeah. I just want to say, like, to be clear, the fun is in the experiments. Like, oh, wow, we got all these people to click on this. This is fun. Um, it's There's not a lot of like high level thinking about that that's one of the things i like to promote you know mm-hmm. so i mean there's there's also a certain kind of literalism to to math nerds one of my favorite stories comes from your kind of sort of colleague emmanuel derman who um would go up in front of his finance classes and say okay let me tell you a story there's a magician up on stage, and he calls up a volunteer from an audience, and he takes out a pack of cards, and he fans out the pack of cards and says, pick a card, any card, and the volunteer picks a card, and he says, don't show it to me, just look at the card, remember what it is, and then put it back in the pack. And then he does that, and then he shuffles the pack of cards, and then fans it open again and says, okay, pick a card, any card. And then the and then you do, and then Emmanuel Derman turns to his class and says, "Okay, here's the story. What is the probability that the card that was picked is the same as the card that was picked the first time round?" And a huge majority of finance nerds, when asked this, give the answer one in fifty-two. No. Which is the only wrong answer <laughs> you can give to that question. You know, whatever the probability is, it's not completely random. Yeah. Um, so there is a certain kind of like otherworldly literalism to, to the kind of geeks who do this. And you're right that it can mean that they, they miss out on real world interactions. But at the same time, a, lo- a lot of these jobs are in very kind of weirdly pointlessly fluffy dot com places like Yelp or Seamless or Uber or somewhere like that where you know they're just trying to sort of A B test and optimize for making people a little bit happier when they're pushing buttons on their phones. And so on the one hand, I think that 
you do need to understand human behavior quite well. And on the other hand, I worry that you, we have these, you know, really smart biochemists who are now turning into, can we get people their mushu pork in a happier way? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just like I saw the great, gener- like I saw the best ge- minds of my generation destroyed by A-B testing. Like, uh, that's, <laughs> like, um, yeah, I think I think that's a fair thing to say. I mean, I think, and this is like a, a pipe dream, if you don't mind me making one, that biochemistry and the academic world of science has to sexy it up a little bit in order to keep these people. Because the truth is, it is a shit show with trying to get funding and do important scientific research, which is valuable to humanity in a way that I don't think, you know, some of this stuff is with A-B testing on online. Some of it is, by the way, not it is valuable. And some people, you know, it depends on the person. And, and the guy in the quoted in the article says, I have much more influence on people be, on my in my job here at um, whatever it was that well, I be, do. Is that why you become a scientist, to it, have influence well, com- on people? Compared to what I did when I was doing genomic testing. And I'm like, okay, um, maybe. <laughs> you know, I, but, I don't but know. But still, genomic testing is probably more important in yeah. the grand scheme of things. I mean, both of them could be evil and both of them could be good. And, and But it's interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, there, there might actually be a geographical cleavage here where the data scientists in the U.S., gravitate towards the six-figure salaries in Silicon Valley, and the really smart genomics and stuff happens increasingly in China. Something's going to happen. We will leave data science and move on to data, or numbers anyway, which are somehow correlated to data, and I'm sure maybe one day Kathy can explain the connection. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy, what's your number this week? My number is 20. Uh, 20 states in this country use risk profiling scores for sentencing. Oh. Yeah. And there was a really amazing article this week um, in the New York Times, um, an op-ed contributor, about, you know, this is unconstitutional. They use things like, let me just be a little bit more clear. They use things like, um, what's your family history? um, And, you know, how do you have a job? And basically your likelihood of committing another crime again based yes. on like your yeah the, and they're trying to predict the, your likelihood of committing a crime but of course that also depends on whether the police pick you up and what you know so it's it's unconstitutional it's scary and it's being argued that it's scientific so it, it must be th- good this is as close to minority report as the yeah. United States has ever come and it's just I mean it is I, actually yeah this, it's, it's, uh, it's, I, I saw that recently with my kids and it, I couldn't believe how prescient it was this is like th- this is the danger of letting court like touch social science of any kind because they they mistake it for hard science and it's the same it's not as bad as with the kind of pseudoscience you get in like hair analysis and things like that but it's frightening i do want to throw in though that that same model almost the same model could be modified for good because like what part of what is so upsetting about this is like how the criminal justice system is you know often doesn't treat people equally. But you could use models to say, you know, for example, give the judge, here's the average sentence for this crime, given this behavior, like taking away whether the person's poor or white, you know, just give them like, this is a baseline and have the judge argue above it or below it. So instead of a sentencing guideline, you do sort of a moving sentencing guideline. Yeah, that's... So, I mean, I'm just saying you could actually try to nudge fairness into the system instead of sort of um, sort of have a negative feedback loop of unfairness, which is what this looks like. My number is 100 million, which um, 
in a rare turn of events, is not $100 million. It's 100 million people. Ooh. It's 100 million people who, according to various credit union organizations, they claim now that there are 100 million credit union members in America, which huh. is an enormous number. Um, it's almost certainly overstated, actually. I think what they're doing is they're double counting so that if you have three if you have accounts at three different credit unions, then you count, get counted three times as three people. But even so, this is a huge chunk of the population. It is. Yeah. And, you know, there's, what, 250, 300 million people in America, something like that. And this That's is, twice as many as the number of people that work at McDonald's, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the interesting thing to me is that, you know, these are people who do have access to um, relatively well-structured, well-priced financial products. Um, many of them, if not most of them, probably understand the difference between a credit union and a bank. You know, you get these periodic campaigns. Arianna Huffington, during the financial crisis, set up something called Move Your Money because we were all angry at the banks. And so she said, move your money to a credit union. And although that campaign, I don't think, had a huge immediate effect, you know, there's a drumbeat. And the more people who understand the difference and the more people who have accounts at credit unions, uh, the more pressure there is going to be on the banks to provide better and cheaper services. Bill, would you mind for just for listeners who I, I, I'm guessing most people listening to this podcast know the difference between a bank and a credit union. But would you mind just like doing the elevator pitch version of that? <laughs> just like because some people don't. I mean, it's you'd true. be surprised. Well, I mean, it's also it's also I mean, the simple answer is a credit union is a bank which is owned by its members. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bank which isn't owned by a bunch of faceless shareholders and, you know, international Dr. Evil types. It's owned by you. And if you're a member of the credit union, it's run for you and by you and you get to vote for the board and, and you get to run it. And this has upsides and downsides. Um, they tend to be quite small. Uh, it, there's this incredibly confusing web of rules about who can join which credit union, which absolutely no one has been able to adequately explain. But basically, every credit union needs to have something called a field of membership. And it's very unclear if you just sort of go onto the internet and try and work out what field of membership am I in and what credit unions am I eligible to join, it's almost impossible to do that. You have to just kind of stumble across them. Having somehow. said that, I do want to throw in that there's a couple credit unions now that are um, that anyone can join, which is technically impossible because right. there's. A, you have to become a member be of some organization. Yes. And I think it's like Navy. I think the yeah. United States there's, Navy. There's, there's, there's the Internet Credit Union now, which which does that. There's, there's you a, are on the internet. If you are on the internet, <laughs> and you pay five dollars to prove the. But there are ways to do it. But one of the you know, as I say, one of the downsides to credit unions is they tend to be quite small and therefore they don't have the same whiz bang online banking that most banks do they don't have the full range of you know international um investments and whatever other things you might want from a bank but if basically what you want is a atm card a debit card a credit card and every so often a loan or car loan or a mortgage or something they will help you out and they will Maybe even know who you are when you walk into the branch and greet you by greet you by name. Wow. That's exciting. So I, I've got the smallest number this week. I'm going with one third, which is uh, how much uh, SeaWorld Entertainment's stock crashed this week 
after it announced its latest earnings report, um, where it basically said over the first six months of the year, revenue's down, attendance is down, it's going to be down for the full year. And oh, yeah, even though we've been trying to deny this for basically a year now, that whole little documentary Blackfish is actually turning the public against us. Wait, what uh, was that? What was that documentary? So this, okay, so Blackfish was a documentary a CNN actually picked up about SeaWorld's treatment of its killer whales. and uh, Which is unspeakably horrible. Yeah, and, and the fact that that some of those killer whales suffering a sort of cetacean version of PTSD may have been attacking their trainers and killing them as a result, uh, and which SeaWorld always kind of tried to play these off as uh, basically freak accidents that were kind of trainer error. But they were saying, no, some of these whales are actually really damaged and they're acting out. Um, and it, it's been a big controversy. Uh, and so SeaWorld, finally investors just looked and they said, okay, uh, SeaWorld, is, you guys need to get your act together. We're pull, you know, stock crashed. Today, on Friday, the company is announcing that it is building its orcas bigger swimming pools to try and <laughs> improve its image, including one of them in San Diego. At least one of them will have what is called a water treadmill so that the orca, while it's in its bathtub, can swim against a current for a while and get more exercise. Um, whether or not this will placate the public, uh, I guess only time will tell. I hope it doesn't. Yeah. I, I, I really, <laughs> I, you know. Um, yeah. And if I'm an orca, I want to. I don't want to be there. You don't want to be in the Sea World. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, just like how do you? How, I mean, how do you get a whole generation raised on free willy to come to Sea World? I just don't, <laughs> how do you do that? I don't know. How do you, anyway? Sorry. But, but, but you know, it's interesting t- that while. The documentary had a massive effect. The uh, stock price only falls, not after the documentary comes out, but after the results come out, because (laughs) it's the money which really matters. In any case, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening to Slate Money. If you liked the show, please consider subscribing. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you'd be so kind as to leave us a review while you're there, it will help spread the word. You can write to us, um, slatemoney at slate.com. We love all your letters. We will try and feature as many as we can on the show. Our producers are Tracy Samuelson and Stan Alcorn with a special assist this week from Andrea Salenzi, who is putting this all together. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. Until next week.